Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit and resilience and people finding their fertile ground through adversity. I'm your host, Marie Gettelio-Martin, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Do you struggle to put words to the screen? Is writing the very last thing you want to do in your day? My mission is to make communications painless for my clients. I can turn a piece of lackluster, jargon-filled, or technical prose into clear, dynamic narrative. I help my clients discover how to tell their stories or solve their communications challenges. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I'd love to give you a free 30-minute consult. Each week, I alternate this Finding Fertile podcast with my other podcast, Companies That Care which is about business leaders making a difference in the world. On both of my podcasts, I strive to highlight voices from historically excluded populations, the people who don't always get a platform. Check out my website for more details. This week, I interview Nora El-Magbari, who I first met through my church, Spirit of Grace. Nora is an educator, activist, nonprofit founder, scientist, wife, and mom, and a devout Muslim who wears hijab. Nora was our guest preacher for Mother's Day one year. She spoke at an interfaith women's panel, brought her teen daughter to our youth group, and talked about Islam, and emceed an immigrant storytelling event. I love this woman. It was so much fun to interview her about her life and her faith. I know you'll love Nora, too. Let's meet her. Hello, Nora. It's so great to talk to you. It's been so long since we've gotten together. Welcome to the Fighting for the Ground podcast. Thank you, Marie. I'm so excited to be here. It's been a while since I've interviewed somebody I actually know, so I've been looking forward to this. So. Oh, I hope I don't disappoint you. <laughs> no, you will not. The great thing about podcasts is I've met people all around the world, and it's been fascinating, but it's always wonderful to talk to a friend. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. We haven't talked in so long, so it's a good way to catch up, too. Yes, definitely. So let's start at the very beginning. Can you share with our listeners about your childhood? I was actually born in Benghazi, Libya. And that's what my ethnicity is. I'm Libyan, which is a country in North Africa. We have all kinds of mixed heritage. So my mother, she has Turkish descent and my father's from sub-Saharan Africa. So we have blood from all over the world, which is really cool because the more we investigate about our heritage, the more we learn how really connected we are to other people in the world. And, and that's really an amazing thing. And then when I was about three or four years old, my father was anti-Qaddafi person. And we ended up having to flee from Libya because our lives were in danger. You know, Qaddafi went after anyone who didn't follow his regime. And so, you know, I always tell people it's like a Steven Spielberg movie. We were swept out of the country at three o'clock in the morning uh, with just whatever my mom could throw in a suitcase. We ended up in Colorado in 1979. I came when I was like three years old, four years old, and it was not easy for us because my father had absolutely no language, no English language skills, nor did my mother. My mother was pregnant with her fifth child. It was not easy. And he ended up being born on January 13th, 1978, 13 days after arriving to the United States. Oh my gosh, your poor yes. mother. Yes, my poor mother it was really, really sad. But we had to make a life for ourselves. But something really difficult was we ended up moving to a town called Greeley, Colorado. And it is a agricultural town a ranching town. And it also has the largest meat packing plant in the world. And at the time it was called Monfort Packing. And my father was an Olympian. 
He's a shot put discus and powerlifting. So he was still competing at the time when he came to the United States. So he started competing for Colorado State University and then University of Northern Colorado. And what we quickly realized was Colorado was not the most welcoming state. Mm, uh Um, We had many, many migrant workers that would come in during the picking season. I mean, it was everything from onions to peaches. Colorado grows everything. And then we had workers that would come in and work at Monfort. But that population kind of remained to themselves, even whether it was at school or whatever. And then the rest of the population was white. And unfortunately for us, we didn't really fit in anywhere. So it was really hard being the only or one of very few Muslim families to live in that area. And we did face a lot of racism, a lot of prejudice, a lot of bigotry, a lot of hatred. And so growing up was hard. It wasn't Mm -hmm. easy. And being, you know, a Muslim American growing up, and at the time we were refugees, so we, we still didn't have that label, right, of being an American on us. But it was really hard to identify with anyone and really understand what my own identity was. Was I a Muslim? Was I an Arab? Was I an African? Was I an American? What was I? And so that struggle growing up kind of shaped who I am. I have nine siblings. There's nine of us. So we always had fun in that sense. We had each other, which was really, really important. But not knowing where you belong really has a strong impact on your identity, right? And so I found myself always looking for where I belonged. And it wasn't until I grew up. I ended up homeschooling high school because I refused to go. I was so miserable. Mm -hmm. I was bullied. I was treated bad by teachers and everyone around me. I struggled in school, not because I wasn't smart, but because the teachers didn't treat me the same as other kids. And so I homeschooled high school, which was really good because I ended up entering college early. And in college, suddenly people started talking differently and smiling differently and treating you differently because there was just a a different kind of atmosphere. It was no longer a bunch of immature kids at school. Now you had professors and people that were striving for this higher education that were hopefully also striving for more open-mindedness. And I just thought to myself, you know what? I can do this. I Mm -hmm. I can fit in somehow. And I tried. But what ended up happening is I was working 10 times harder than anybody else just to get the same recognition. Mm. I had to get better grades. I had to stay longer in the lab. I had to clean up more. I had to work harder. I just felt like no matter what I did, I was never good enough. And at one point I realized it's really not because of them. It's because of how I was perceiving their behaviors towards me. And I needed to change myself in order to not allow their behaviors to affect me the way it was affecting me. Because no matter how hard you try, you really can't change other people unless they want to be changed. So I had to change myself. I had to figure out, okay, what am I going to do to live a better life, to more productive life, a more efficient life. And and that's exactly what I did. I stopped internalizing, even though I still do it. You know, you can't help it, especially as women, uh-huh. uh, you know, as nurturers and just the generation that we grew up in. We can't help but internalize the way people treat us, especially people we love or we care about, or people that are close to us. And so I just came to a point where I realized it doesn't matter what you think of me. What matters is what I think of me. And what matters is what the people I love and care about think of me. And at the end of the day, I know I'm doing my best and I know I'm not hurting anyone in the process. And so really that is what all my experiences as a child led me to understanding. It just completely reframed my thinking to say, you know what? I am a Muslim. I am an American. I am a woman. I am a hijabi and I am proud. 
of that. And now let's go change the world. Once I accepted my identity of who I was, it was much easier to move forward. Before we started recording, I was telling Nora that she had a regal appearance. And I think that that is why you have this self-awareness and this confidence that just beams outward. And I think it's really amazing that you were able to turn that around on your own and do that yourself. That's very sweet of you to say. And I can't take full credit for doing it myself. You know, my father was very, very strict growing up, but he did teach us to fight Mm. and not physically fight, but Mm -hmm. fight for what we believed in. Mm -hmm. And my mother was just, I call her a walking heart because Mm. she truly taught us the meaning of unconditional love, the meaning of acceptance, the meaning of tolerance, the meaning of kindness and generosity and patience. You know, those are such important qualities to have when you're constantly fighting a world that's ever changing and ever almost declining in things like manners and just certain aspects of respect and dignity, right? And then I had, you know, just people in my life that mentored me without even realizing they were mentoring me because I learned through their action. I've been a teacher for over 30 years now, almost 30 years. Actually, next year will be my 30th year being a teacher. And I learned how to be a good teacher through both my bad teachers and good teachers. With the (laughs) bad teachers, I said, you know what? I will never teach like that. I will never treat my students like that. And if that teacher just said this to me or just taught me something in this way, it would have made a world of difference. And then the good teachers, what? who are those teachers? Like Mrs. Brown in fifth grade, God bless her soul. This woman was just full of love and patience. And when I had no one to sit with at lunch, she would call me in and I would sit and have lunch with her in her classroom. And she would tell me how beautiful she thought my hair was or how people don't understand what a great friend I would be if they just gave me a chance. She gave me that bit of confidence. Right now in the teaching world, it's called banking time, right? You just spend a little bit of time with a student, but it does make a world of difference to them. So there were people in my life that truly, truly inspired me to be who I am and help me through that journey to not becoming a bit old woman. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. right. I'll roll with the punches and I am happy and blessed with whatever God has given me, good or bad in my life, because with everything we learn, right? And we move forward. Exactly. It's interesting because I've actually been to Greeley, Colorado. Oh my gosh, what a small world. My parents had these friends when they lived in Germany before I was born. And he was a professor at whatever the college is in Greeley, I think. University of Northern Colorado. Yes, yes. So Uh I still have a friend, their son, who I'm still friends with, who lives there. So I remember the smell from the meat packing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So just going back a little bit, it's always so amazing to me to think about people who arrive here without speaking any English and how they, I mean, how did your parents do it when they didn't speak any English? So my dad tells me a funny story. So when he arrived to the United States, he began taking English classes at CSU, Colorado State University. And while he was there, he walked into Moby Gym. Moby Gym is an indoor arena gym. And he saw people throwing the shot put. So he went up to the guy and he was wearing slacks and a button-up shirt and dress boots. Back then in the 70s, early 80s, men used to wear those boots with the heels. And he was wearing those boots. He points to the shop foot and he goes, me? And he gestures the throwing sign. And the guy goes, you? And he starts laughing. And the coach comes by. And at the, at the time, who was the coach? It was Tom Tellez, who is now the head coach of the Olympic track and field team. Oh, really? He, he was there. Yes, he was there. So the coach comes and he's like, what's going on? Who's this giant? You know, my dad's 6'5". At the time, he was about 280 pounds of pure 
pure muscle. And my dad points to the shot put and he goes, me, me. And he makes the gesture how to throw the shot put. So the coach goes, okay, go ahead, go ahead. So my dad takes the shot put and he throws it and he breaks the school's indoor uh, <laughs> record. He breaks wow. it right then and there without even trying. And the coaches just flip out. They're like, oh my God, what's your name? What's your name? And my dad's like, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> So they start running around, you know, and they're saying, who speaks this man's language? Who speaks this man's language? Does anyone? And they start pulling people. They run into the international school and they said, you know, what language is he speaking? And someone says he's speaking Arabic. And so they bring someone over and they say, hey, to talk to this guy. And and my dad tells him, oh, I'm from Libya and I'm a shot putter and and I'm Olympian. And they're like, oh, my goodness. And they're like, okay, how old are you? And he's like 35. And that's really old for that world. But my father was, I guess, a late bloomer. I mean, he had five kids already and uh, he wasn't a late bloomer, but he just was really strong and is still strong. And he ended up getting a full ride scholarship for shot put discus. Well, trying to learn, he had this other student that basically became his translator throughout his schooling. And slowly but surely he understood English. And the only words he knew at the time were yes, no, stop, and me, me and you. You know, that's all he knew. And he goes, I knew that from like television, from the TV shows. You know, he just, with time, he learned. And for us kids, we learned before him. One of my brothers learned English in like three months. You know, we ended up helping as much as possible. And when I was nine years old, I actually filled in all of my parents' immigration documents. I filled in and all the paperwork. I did all of that stuff at nine years old. And that's because I could read and I could write. It took a while. And my, you know, my father went from absolutely no English to earning a PhD. He's come a long way and he's a very, very hard worker. And, you know, we took that from him. All of us siblings are very hard workers. And my mother was an unbelievably supportive and loving and patient woman who helped him every step of the way and helped us become decent human beings. And that's how you do it, right? And I find that also with the refugees I work with. You know, the kids are unbelievably resilient and so smart and such survivalists. And they quickly learn the language, which helps us when we work with the families. And and that's how we do it. You know, I relate a lot to the kids that come to this country. I'm sure you do. When I hear people making statements about people who are immigrants or refugees and claiming that they should be speaking English, it gets me, I just feel so angry because so many refugees and immigrants speak so many languages too. Like it's infuriating. I feel you. And when people say this to me, I say, okay, imagine if you were forcibly removed from this country, thrown into, let's say, Yugoslavia and expected to not only learn the language, but understand the transportation system, the medical system, the educational system, the political system, the housing system, all within a few months, if you're lucky to even have help. My parents came and they actually had nobody. They had nobody. They had to figure this out all on their own. And my father was lucky enough to walk in to that gym. I do believe in destiny and I do believe in fate, but I also believe that when people are given certain circumstances, you either sink or swim. And refugees and immigrants that come to this country, so many of them are forced to come here. They don't have a choice otherwise. And so 
it's hard enough for them to live their lives without people berating and disrespecting them, but they survive and they make it and they end up learning English on top of the three or four or maybe five other languages they already know because these people have had to move from country to country just to survive. And so, you know, when you give this scenario to people and they're like, you know what, I don't think I could do that. And I was like, well, that's what makes you lucky. That's mm-hmm. what gives you privilege. Right. You know, so count your blessings and move on. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You have a very thick resume. There you have at least one patent under your name. So could you tell our listeners about your educational and professional background? So my educational background is I went to the University of Northern Colorado and I got my master's degree in human biology with an emphasis in opioid pharmacology. While there, I helped develop a drug that is currently in the human testing phases at Pfizer. And of course, by now, your name is off of it, right? I no longer have any claim to fame in terms of money or anything like that for this drug. I do have claim to fame in that I did help create this drug. And it's a drug that's actually 10,000 times more potent than morphine and does not have any of the side effects of morphine. So I don't know where it is in terms of the process. It is a very long process to get a drug passed through the FDA and through all the testing. But I do hope that one day it will be used because it will change the medical world in terms of addiction and Mm -hmm. dependence on medications, especially pain medications, like, you know, what we currently have available, like morphine. Oh my gosh. So, you know, that was a long time ago and I still have a strong science background. I've been a science teacher for a very long time, but this year I became the principal at a school at the Islamic School of Portland. And it's a very different role. And it's very hard for me to step out of the teacher role and into the administrative (laughs) role. Um, And I I miss teaching a lot, but every Mm -hmm. once in a while I'll get a chance because a kiddo will come and ask me for help. And I'm like, oh yes, yes, I can help you. I also, over the, the years, founded several organizations. My two most successful have been Daughters of Eve and Sons of Adam. And this is a youth-based organization where we work on empowering Muslim youth to become active members of society. That's through civic engagement, volunteerism, you know, different forms of education and work. And the whole idea is to that claim that identity of who they are as you are a Muslim, you are an American, you are French, you are Canadian, whatever it is. At the end of the day, you are an individual who can make an impact on this world by taking the right steps to learn how to do it. And it also creates safe spaces for Muslim youth who do struggle with their identities and do struggle with acceptance and just a place for them to talk and be with other kids that are like them. And then I also created, co-founded the Portland Refugee Support Group. And I'm very excited to say that we just officially hired our first full-time ED. He started on Monday, actually, November 1st was his first day. And it was an unbelievably tedious process. We had over 300 applications. Oh my gosh. Yes. And and he is incredible. His name is Peter and he's the former vice president now of United Way in Tucson, Arizona. So he'll be coming here soon. We have made unbelievable strides in helping refugee clients. And what we do is post-resettlement work. So after the resettlement agencies are done with what they're doing, we kind of step in and take over. And we have four different umbrellas that we work under. We have the community aid, which is we help people with their rent, utilities, maybe medical bills, a car repair, learning how to drive, something you know of that nature. And then we have community wellness, which is our mental health piece. We are a trauma-informed 
trauma-informed organization. We're trying to be where we actually implement trauma training in all of our work. And we are doing that with the different programs that we run. But we have monthly psychosocial potlucks, different types of therapy opportunities. We have summer camps and summer reading programs for kids, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we have different activities for families. And then we have community classroom. And Community Classroom works really hard one-on-one with refugees to learn English, whether it's homework help, ESL, conversational English. We have different opportunities for refugees to improve their English skills in a faster way because it is on a one-on-one basis. And then the bread and butter of this organization is our community connections. And that's where we match volunteers with families and they become that direct liaison with the organization. But more importantly, and we have a saying, sit down for a cup of tea. We tell them form a relationship based on friendship and trust that will last a lifetime. So even if they're no longer volunteers with our organization, they will remain friends with that family. Hopefully that's our goal. And we have seen that over and over again with the clients that we serve and the volunteers that come and volunteer with us. And so we found a lot of success with the work that we do when it comes to our clients working towards self-sufficiency. And that's what what our goal is. That's part of our mission. You know, self-sufficiency means different things to different people. For us, it means, okay, are you happy where you are? Are you making enough money? Is your income enough for you to be happy? Is this where you want to be? Is your education where you want to be? Is your family life, your mental health, your career, your, you know, whatever, your financial wellness, is it where you want it to be? And in order to get there, we partnered with an organization called Empath that they're out of Boston and they created a trauma-informed evidence-based program that helps you work with clients to help lead them to financial self-sufficiency. But their program is geared towards single women, single moms, lots of whom are homeless or becoming homeless. And so what we're doing is we're adapting that model to work specifically with refugees and then even more specifically refugees from different regions of the world because their ideas about what self-sufficiency is is different. So we're really excited about developing the organization even more. And the entire goal is helping these refugees, and we also work with asylum seekers, helping them with giving them that kind of just a little boost and a step in the right direction early on, that guidance that my family never got. And so it took us decades more time to purchase a home, to Mm -hmm. understand how to finance a car, to do those kind of things, right? where we're working with our clients very early on about how things work in America. You don't have to figure it out alone. We're going to help you figure it out. And once you figure it out, you're going to be better educated to make better decisions for your family. And that's what we do at PRSG. And it's a very time-consuming, exhausting job, but it's worth every minute because Mm. we do see the positive changes in our clients. And I love the way that you have used your own personal experiences to power this organization. And is it a fairly new organization? How long ago was it founded? So we're actually entering our sixth year, but I'm going to tell you, I'm very proud of the work we've done. Wow. We've received a lot of recognition for the work we've done because I think I want to just, you know, be honest and say my lived experiences have helped cut out 
all the unnecessary time used to figure out how to help people. Because I have lived through what these people have lived through. I have lived through war. I have lived through trauma. I have lived through chaos. I have lived through fleeing. I have lived through immigration. I have lived through the process. It's very easy to say, guys, that's not going to help. Yes, yes. This is what they need. They don't need yoga right now. Right. What they need is food. They need to feel safe. They need a job. They need someone who's going to understand their culture, their faith, their language. This is what they need. And so that's how we started. We started with that matching of people that were in the same situation, similar situation that could really connect to the client, you know, and just help them move forward. And then those who didn't have the lived experiences had to go through pretty intensive training to feel what these people might be feeling. That really helped because it did save a lot of time. Shifting gears a little bit, tell us about your family and your lovely daughters. Oh, so I am married to probably, I mean, I'm just going to say the most perfect man in the world. I, <laughs> I absolutely love and adore him. He's so supportive, so patient, so kind. He's a psychiatrist and he's been able to help me at PRSG a lot because he helped develop the trauma-informed way in which we work. And then I have three beautiful girls and I have a senior in high school uh, that's about to graduate. And I told her, gosh, I just want to lock you in a room and never let you go anywhere because I'm so scared. You know, she's yeah. about to leave home. She's about to go off to this yeah. new adventure. And it's just so scary as a mom. And you, and I just look at her face and remember her when she was five years old, you know, when she used to just sing and dance in the, in the living room or dress up like a princess or a fairy. And now she's freaking out about her SAT scores or, you know, where she's going to apply and all these things. You know, just seeing her become a woman has not been easy, you know. No, it has, it's not been easy. And then I have a 10th grader who's ever bit a firecracker and she doesn't know what she wants to do with her life, but secretly she's an unbelievable artist and a photographer. And I see her heading in that direction, but I don't think she realizes that yet. And then I have my youngest who is absolutely my baby and she just turned 12 and she's in the seventh grade. She keeps us young and she's the most kiddish of our three kids. She still loves to play. She's very smart. She's very wise. She's very brave. You know, I'm very, very blessed. And I pray every day that God protects them. And and they definitely keep me busy and on my toes, but they're good girls. They're very, very good girls. And then I have four cats. Wow. <laughs> and so three of the cats are boys. So they're my sons. And, <laughs> and we have a female cat. She's a tortoise shell calico, very ornery. So you can't have another female in the house. <laughs> so yes. So we have three boys and two of them are brothers. And one of them is six month old kitten. And he is just a handful. My goodness, he's destroyed my house five times over. But they're fun. And you know, Mocha, the, the oldest, the female, she is definitely the queen. And she keeps them in line. But uh, my house is quite full. And that's my family. They're the ones that fill my heart and they fill my cup. And especially, you know, when my days are hard, and they remind me how blessed I am. So yes, your daughters I'm are just lucky. full of this wonderful, positive energy that I love. Oh, they are. Yes, they're really sweet. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about just the attitudes towards people who are Muslim. During while you've been here in the US, so there was 9-11, then there was the 2016 election. How have you seen xenophobia and discrimination toward you and your family wax and wane? through your lifetime here? You know, that's such a great question. You know, 9-11 was not easy for any Muslim. And the worst part of 9-11 was 
for years and years and years being expected to apologize mm. on behalf of the entire Muslim world mm-hmm. for what happened. And, you know, as Muslims, those acts, and I have my own theories about 9-11, which we won't go into, but as Muslims, those acts of terror, any acts of terror are absolutely non-negotiable they are forbidden. And so for people to tie any acts of terror to the religion is really horrible on so many levels because what happens is you end up tying it to individuals who practice that religion. And so after 9-11 was really hard, I actually got married right after 9-11. And I remember, you know, I had police cars and, and police that were outside of the wedding patrolling because my father had many friends in government and they're the ones who told him, you know, Omar, you, you should not have this wedding without security because people know you and they know you're Muslim and they might use it as an opportunity to hurt you. Our masjid, um, the Islamic center that was in Greeley, has been shot at uh, probably an average of four times a year since oh. 9-11. Oh, yes. my gosh. And we're very blessed and thankful that no one's ever been hurt. But, you know, Colorado is still a very racist state, unfortunately, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, a few years after, probably about 10 years after 9-11, you know, things would die down for a bit and then the anniversary would come and, and spike again. But over time, it got a little better. And then Trump got into office and Trump just reignited that anti-Islamic, Islamophobic sentiment. I hate the word Islamophobia because that means fear of Islam. And that's not what it is. It's a hate of Islam. It's a hate of what's different. It's not a fear. You know, when people fear things, they don't necessarily hate them. They might try to avoid them. They might try to understand them, but they don't necessarily hate them. On the other hand, People absolutely hate Islam and they hate people who practice that religion and they show it daily. I experience it daily. Still here, even in liberal Oregon, we don't even go into Southern Oregon anymore because we have felt so (sighs) driving down there and some parts of Eastern Oregon as well. You know, it's sad that people, you know, even you you think they're okay, you think they're normal, but as soon as somebody eggs them on, like what Trump did, is all of a sudden everything they had buried inside just comes out and their true violence nature shows. And it just is so hurtful. Like, why do you hate me when you don't even know me? You've never even said hello to me. You've never asked me my name. How could you just hate somebody simply by the way they look or the faith that they practice or where they come from? For me, I cannot understand that. I cannot comprehend that because I cannot hate anybody based on who they are. And even then, if people do things, I still don't hate the person. I might hate their actions, but I don't hate the individual. I don't hate the human being. We are all creations of God. We are all human beings. We all deserve the right to live in peace, the right to feel love, the right to feel safe. But I, on a daily basis, don't feel safe Mm -hmm. because the environment that we live in has changed so much. And you have Trump and his followers on one side, and then you have the Black Lives Matter movement, and then you have the Me Too movement, and then you have cancel culture, and then you have everything else, COVID, and everything else that has just really happened within the last few years. People are emotionally and psychologically exhausted. They're exhausted. And you're trying to balance all of these things, the right versus the left versus the middle. It's too much. And throwing COVID in there, what COVID did was it taught people how not to be human. 
right? People forgot manners, people forgot social construct in terms of like what's acceptable, what's not. And just in terms of regular old behavior, like, oh, thank you, please. You know, yes, open the door. Yes, be polite. Things like that. Then on top of it, you have all these strong emotional forces that have created very deep feelings in human beings. And then nobody has the tools to deal with those feelings. So they just lash out right? They just lash out. And that's what I'm seeing from both sides of the spectrum. And it's causing a lot of conflict and a lot of pain that not all of it can be settled with a nice conversation over a cup of tea, that's for sure. But the violence I have seen, particularly from the right, has been so scary, so scary. And you just don't know, you know, I try to be as in the middle of possible, but I definitely lean more left. I don't take my kids downtown anymore. You know, I don't engage in certain conversations anymore because I know off the get-go, I'm at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at just human beings in general during this time, it's really sad, especially for our youth, to understand what's going on and what to believe and what not to believe or what to feel or what not to feel. And I don't know when we're going to get out of that. I don't know when that's going to end. I do believe in God. I do have strong faith. And he has been my compass. He has been my guiding light. He is what's gotten me through all of the trauma that we faced over the last few years. But, you know, I pray for this world. I pray Mm -hmm. for the earth that's suffering. I pray for the people that are suffering. I pray for the people who are oppressed and abused and neglected. And I also pray for the people who are just ignorant. They don't know any better. I'm not going to say they're not, I'm not going to say they're naive, but they're definitely ignorant to the possibility of an, of billions of people in this world that are absolutely incredible human beings, but they'll never give them a chance to get to know them because of what they've been taught or how they grew up or whatever leader they happen to be following at the time. I feel so horrible for you that you don't feel safe. I understand that you don't feel safe, but I feel horrible <laughs> that you, oh, you know, well. that you're in that position. It's really, it's just really awful. Yeah. It's, you know, <sighs> it's the reality of life and, you know, you just got to deal with it and move on. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue to my next question, which is, what do you love most about being Muslim and what do you find most challenging? You may have already said the most challenging part. Yeah, that's a great (laughs) question. So, you know, people ask me, I actually had a woman tell me once, well, you're educated. Why are you Muslim? Why would you practice a religion that oppresses women? And I literally said to her, if you only knew, the thing I love the most about being a Muslim woman is the fact of what the religion does in terms of honoring women. Islam gives women its full, her full set of rights and allows a woman to live as a free person where nobody, nobody can tell her or dictate to her how to live her life. We live our lives based on what God has taught us, not what man has taught us. While Europe was having conversations about whether or not women had a soul and whether or not her soul was good or evil, Muslim women had full set of rights. They could own land. They could vote. They could lead an army. They could could marry who they chose. You know, people have twisted the faith so much that they made it look like women are oppressed in this faith. When in reality, I am extremely empowered and extremely powerful. I have so many things that God gave me that gives me the control over my own life, right? Where nobody else can dictate to me what I should or should not do because God has already done that. So who are you to come tell me what to do when God has already told me what to do? So that's something that I absolutely adore about being a Muslim 
uh, and a Muslim woman. I also love that this faith, if practiced properly, teaches love and kindness and tolerance and dedication and peace and love and, you know, just all the things that make this world a better place from being good stewards to our planet, to animals, to making sure that every human life is treated as sacred. That is all in my faith. And that is why I love my faith. The hardest thing about practicing my faith is actually not the way people treat me. People aren't going to treat me the way they, they want to treat me. Probably the hardest thing about practicing my faith is sometimes there are you know certain things that are allowed and, and are not allowed. And, and I respect that 100%. But this is funny. And I think it's silly also. But I love tattoos. And I've always wanted to get a tattoo. Really? Yes, yes, I do. I think they're beautiful. And I've always wanted to get a tattoo. But because they are forbidden in Islam, I will respect that law. I will Mm -hmm. respect it. And I will not get a tattoo. But what's funny is every time I see one that I really love, I'm like, gosh, that would look great on my shoulder, you know, or something like that. So believe it or not, it's silly, right? It's silly, Mm -hmm. but... That's not um, silly. Not silly at all. Yeah, but it's, you know, sometimes there are things that are not allowed in my face. And sometimes you just want to be like, hmm, I wonder what that would be like. But because I am a person of faith, I understand that whether or not I understand the reason behind why God has forbidden something, I will respect it wholeheartedly. And I will not break that code and, you know, lower my respect or, you know, have God see me any differently than trying to be the best Muslim that I can be. So other than that, you know, life in general is just hard, whether you're Muslim or not. I think the beautiful thing is my faith helps me deal with the hardships in my life in a much more pleasant way than those who don't have faith. Mm -hmm. I really believe that. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of really good temporary tattoos. Well, that's good to know, girl. Let me try them out. (laughs) I think that in the last probably five to 10 years, they've really improved temporary tattoos. So that would be a fun thing to try out. Well, maybe maybe you'll help me do that. That Yeah, exactly. I will. I will send you some links. Yes. So yeah. So one of the things I've heard you talk about is for our listeners, you wear a full hijab. Mm -hmm. Yet I've also heard you call yourself a feminist. So can you talk a little bit about your experience about wearing a hijab, what that means to you and what does feminism? mean to you and how do they go together? You know, what people don't realize is Islam is very much a feminist faith. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was also a feminist. To me, a feminist is someone who fights for the rights of women and fights for them in a way that gives them their own dignity and their own self-respect, right? And so before Islam, women were treated like slaves. They were treated like property. They were treated like they were actually owned as property. You know, they weren't allowed to have any kind of money. They weren't allowed to work. They weren't allowed to speak. They weren't allowed to do anything. They weren't allowed to leave their homes. And when Islam came, it gave women its full set of rights. It made them free. And what people don't understand about the hijab, one of the symbols of wearing hijab is actually to identify a free woman versus a woman who was owned at the time, whether it was referred to as concubines or indentured servants or anything else, women at that time were traded like a commodity. And so Islam, when a woman wore hijab, she was telling the world, I am a free woman. You cannot touch me. You cannot tell me what to do. You cannot touch my wealth. The most powerful individual in the Middle East, in what's now today Saudi Arabia, the most wealthy individual, the most powerful individual 
at the time was a woman named Khadija. She was a business owner. She was the wealthiest in town. And she was one of the most beautiful women in, in that area at the time. And men coveted her. They wanted her. They wanted her for her wealth. They wanted her for her, for her stature. That's what they wanted her for. But she ended up asking the Prophet Muhammad to marry her. She asked him. He didn't ask her. Mm -hmm. So this is what Islam gave to women. This is what you know, our faith gave to women and it gave them that feeling of empowerment that I am an individual who is allowed to live her life the way that God has ordained for her to live that life. And that is a, as a free person. And people don't understand how powerful that is. You cannot objectify me. You cannot use me. You cannot touch me. You cannot do anything to me or my property without my permission. That is what Islam did for women. And so for me, just as a current feminist, is I actually have to re-educate Muslims about what women are in our faith. You know, tell men, oh, no, I'm sorry, you can't prevent your wife from doing this. You actually have to provide your wife with this. You know, your money, your wife, her money is her money. You can't touch it. And guess what? Your money is her money, too. That's what Islam says, because it's your duty to make sure that you provide and care for your wife if you choose to get married. A woman does not have to get married. She is not forced into marriage. She gets to, she can choose who she wants to marry, in fact. So, so many different stereotypes are created about Islam that came from movies and from Hollywood and from whatever that unfortunately also spread into Muslim countries. And so Muslims in general have just forgotten because they're not practicing the faith like they should be practicing the faith. They have forgotten what women are, who they are to God. There's a saying in our tradition that heaven is under the feet of mothers, right? Women are highly coveted in Islam. They're compared to a hidden gem or a hidden pearl where they might be, you know, covered from the outside because of the way we dress. But inside is something very valuable. We are taught to look at women for who they are, how they think, what they believe. You have to listen to them and get to know them as a person and not judge them on what you see on the outside. That's what hijab means to me. That's what feminism means to me. It means I am a woman. Hear me roar. And don't touch me, plain and simple. That's very powerful, Nora. Wow. It just makes me also think about how similar Islam is to Christianity. And that oh, yes. you've got these extremes, right? People mm -hmm. who are not following the path of our prophets, you know, because if you look at who they were, both Muhammad and Jesus, and how they mm -hmm. treated women, it's very different mm -hmm. than how some of their followers do. Absolutely. You know? And also Absolutely. some of the writers of the Bible, you know, yeah. and so that's a really important message. I love it. So I just have a couple more questions. One of them sure. is you talked a little bit about sending off your oldest daughter. I, I can totally relate to that feeling. But you have a special feeling because you've got daughters who are wearing the hijab and who are discriminated against outright. Well, I have white boys, right? So mm -hmm. it's very different. And so it must be doubly or quadruply hard to send your daughters out into the world. Uh, what are the most important messages that you want your daughters and the children you teach to take out into the world as they grow up? That is such a great question. And for years and years and years, I have hopefully instilled in my daughters faith in the power of believing in yourself and having confidence in who you are as an individual. Aside from faith, aside from education, aside from anything, just that belief in who you are as a human being. When you truly believe it in your mind and in your heart, it shows. 
It shows in your actions. It shows on your face. It shows in the very way that you walk, right? And if you are that person that loves yourself and has confidence in yourself, but is not arrogant and is not cocky, that's very important. You know, there's a very fine line to walk there. When you have that faith in yourself, there's nothing that you cannot accomplish if you set your mind to it. And no matter where you go in the world, you're going to face struggle. You're going to face obstacles, but it is that belief in yourself that you can overcome those things that's going to make you successful. And you got to be smart, right? We have a saying in Islam, the believer is aware and alert. So that's very important in today's world. And I've taught my daughters, know your surroundings, know the people you talk to, know where you're going, how to get there, how to get home. Those are simple survival skills. And I teach that to my girls. I teach that to the youth that I work with because we are at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. We know there are people there out there that hate us simply for who we are. And so to be prepared for any situation that can happen is going to just help my girls and, and, and the kids and the youth that I work with just get through life a little easier. And they also know that mom is here. Mm -hmm. Bob is here. People who love you are here. And when you need backup, when you fall and you need help getting up, whatever it is, whatever situation you get into, whatever trouble you get into, people who love you will always be there for you to help you along the way. And so having that confidence that you're not alone is also very, very important. Absolutely. And I will keep you in my prayers for this coming year as oh, you let you. go, as you go through this process of letting go. Because I is, know it is hard. It's a hard one. And you know, my oldest one was easier because he went to peel you up in Tacoma. He's only two and a half hours away. Uh -huh. But it's hard when they go far, boy. Yeah, it is hard. And she, like she's applying to Harvard and yeah. colleges in Colorado and Canada. And yeah, so we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm here for you when you need Thank that support. You. Yes. <laughs> so my last question is, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? Honestly, my parents. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I can't even pick one or the other. Watching them go through what they went through. People don't know this about me, but we were homeless for six months. Mm. And to watch my parents struggle through that was really hard. You know, not having food to eat, not having warmth to sleep in. I remember when we were younger, we were all huddled up together in coats and socks and shoes, trying to sleep under tons of blankets because it was so cold. And my mother crying, praying, you know, asking God for help, like, how are we going to get out of this, right? And my father sitting, thinking, I remember him just sitting and staring, thinking like, what am I going to do? And you know what? They got out of it. And they taught us that no matter how hard life gets, there's always a way out if you don't give up. You cannot give up because if you give up, then you've lost. I thank God Almighty because all of us are very successful in our lives and we're happy. We have our traumas, right? We have our PTSDs. We have our issues like everybody else. But I got to tell you, we are a lot better off than a lot of people because we faced our demons and we chose to fight them rather than ignore them. And my parents taught me that. My mother taught me the true meaning of love, patience, and perseverance. My father taught me the true meaning of grit, of fighting, of not giving up. When I went to Colorado to visit them this summer, for the first time in my life, I saw my parents as aging. And it was very, very hard for me. Very hard for me. It got to a point where I wanted to move back just to take care of them. And my parents are my superheroes. They are my heroes. They are the people I look up to. And to see them losing that energy and that light 
that have kept them going for so many years. You know, they've been married for 50 years, 51 mm -hmm. years. It's really hard. And they've been through a lot. They could probably write volumes of books. I was told my dad, and he, he did actually write his autobiography. But I told him, like, our life would be an Academy Award winning movie because you can't make this stuff up. Mm -hmm. You know, when you tell people these stories, they're like, what? How? That's impossible. No, it's not impossible. This is what happens to humans all over the world. You know, we live in this cushy bubble here in the United States of America, and we don't really see reality. COVID helped some people see the reality of what life is like when everything is shut down and when you're, you know, you're start fearing for your life. But this is a normal thing in a lot of the parts of the world. I thank God every day for my parents and what they're able to teach me. And they're the true definition of grit, sacrifice, and perseverance and success. What a life that you've led. What a story. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for letting me share it. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. It's just been wonderful to hear more about you. And yeah, you're such an inspiration. Oh, gosh. Thank you, Marie, for this. Honestly, Marie, you're just such a ball of sunshine. Oh, and you're so you. positive and loving and welcoming and caring. And everyone at Spirit of Grace is really. But I'm so glad that I met you there and that we have become friends. And just make sure you tell Karen how proud I am of him because I, I think will. he's doing awesome. I know. I think back so fondly to that time when you came to the youth group. That mm -hmm. was just really moving. And the fact that your daughter, she really hadn't been around any non-Muslim kids up yeah. then. That was yeah. such a powerful evening. So, yeah. well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that you gave us an opportunity and to share your space, and it meant a lot and it was very humbling. And I appreciate every second of it. So, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate you too. Hopefully, we can see each other in person before oh, too much so. time passes. Please I would some... love that. Bye yes. bye, hun. Thank you so much, Nora. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did putting it together. I admire Nora so much, and it pains me to hear about all the bigotry she's experienced throughout her life. You can see photos and learn more about Nora at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com. Look for the Finding Fertile Ground podcast tab. Next week on Companies That Care, I interview Veronica Ariola, who is a widely published professional feminist mom and writer who has been working to diversify the STEM field for over 20 years. In her work at the University of Illinois, Chicago, Veronica works to ensure a supportive campus environment for Latinx students studying science. We spoke about how companies can attract and support Latinx and other employees of color in the workplace, especially in STEM environments. If you're inspired by this episode or any others, or have an idea for a guest or topic I should cover, drop me a line at marie at fertilegroundcommunications.com. I love to hear from my listeners. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and leave a review.